You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Everyone, my name is Wesley, one of the pastors here, and today we come to a fun text, don't we? Uh, Jesus is flipping tables and getting angry. It sounds more like a professional wrestling match than the life of Jesus today, but uh, we're going to find something pretty remarkable as Jesus just left a wedding that we saw last week. He goes from the party maker to really the party pooper here at the temple. And one of the things I love, uh, I love Netflix documentaries. Um, and there was one that recently popped up on my watch list again that I watched several years ago. Uh, and it's title, maybe you've seen this before, it's the fire documentary, uh, the greatest party that never happened. Does anybody remember the fire festival or what, what it was supposed to be? Okay, if you're not familiar with this, uh, let me just give you a little background and context to what I think is such a fascinating uh, Netflix documentary. The fire festival was supposed to be this luxurious and exclusive music festival. Uh, the, the, the entrepreneur who kind of organized this, Billy McFarlane and rapper Ja Rule, um, they decided that they would purchase a tropical island and they would throw this incredible private party uh, on this Caribbean island and they, they, they get everything together and they begin to advertise and they advertise that they're going to have this gourmet cuisine, that they're going to have this A-list performers and they actually get these supermodels to, to uh, promote it on their Instagram. And so it sells out immediately. It's this big thing that everybody's so excited to see. And then the attenders arrive. And what they find is one of epic failure. And in fact, the next picture kind of shows this is like McFarland, the guy who, uh, who organized it. Um, when they arrived, they found that they were staying in disaster relief tents and that their, their cuisine were literally cheese sandwiches. And that was it. That was all there was. There was no A-list performers. There was no luxurious beaches. There was nothing that, that was promoted uh, for these individuals. And you can imagine Billy McFarlane got in a little trouble for this. He ended up getting six years in prison and fined $26 million for the money that he had defrauded those who were attending. And if you watch the documentary, you find that the participants are, they're furious. They're irate and they have every right. They're, it's justifiable that they're angry because they didn't get what they paid for at all. They didn't get anything of what they were promised at all. Now, the irony of this is that there's apparently a fire 2.0 happening later this year. Um, and even though, again, I, I, I did my research, I went to the website, there are no details given whatsoever. It's already sold out. Now, uh, I think Jesus tells in this passage that he knows what's in man. And I think he knows we're pretty dumb. Uh, but anyways, that's not the point of this. The point is that, that Jesus finds himself in a very similar situation today, actually. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's coming from this wedding ceremony and he's actually coming to a much bigger celebration called Passover. And in Jerusalem, they would celebrate Passover as this annual festival, this annual feast that, that commemorated uh, when, when God delivered his people from Egypt. And the Passover involved this great feast. They were celebrating and drinking and eating and, and remembering and so on. And so as Passover is approaching, Jesus goes to the temple, the center of it all. And instead of what we should have find and expect at Passover, what he finds is something much worse than just some bad accommodation and cheese sandwiches. Jesus shows up to the temple and like Usher will do at the Super Bowl party tonight, he says, watch this. And he does something amazing. Yeah, I had to throw that in there, right? He does something absolutely amazing. Something so unexpected. He gets a whip of cords and he begins to flip tables and he begins to drive people out of the temple. I mean, Jesus is like a parent who shows up to a teenage house party. He clears that thing out immediately. And he has every right to do so. 
He has every right to be angry in this moment. He has every right to be infuriated in this moment. And he also has all the authority to cleanse this house because it's his house. You see, Billy McFarlane gets in trouble and he has to pay a very, very steep price for the wrongdoings he committed to thousands of people. And Jesus shows us the temple. What he's going to show us today is that he's willing to pay an even steeper price for all of our wrongdoings. He's willing to enter in and pay a steeper price for all the times that we have neglected to worship him. For the times that we've made a mockery of our worship of him. For the times where we've been so distracted to worship him. For all the times that we've just gone through the motions. For all the times that we've been unconcerned and disinterested in God. And Jesus shows us a different way. He shows us here what it looks like to have a zeal for the glory and the presence of God. You see, this picture of Jesus is far from kind of the nice guy picture we typically have of him that won't hurt a fly, you know? The, the kind of effeminate Jesus that sometimes we become accustomed to. What you see here is Jesus, one who has sweat on his brows and he has zeal in his lips and he is coming with authority and he is willing to turn over the tables and he is also willing to turn over the tables in our lives because he doesn't want anything to keep us from experiencing the presence of God. He is that passionate, that zealous for the glory of God in our lives that he doesn't want anything to keep us from experiencing his real presence. Why? Because we're gonna to find today that he is actually the true temple. That is our main point. That Jesus is gonna reveal something to us that he is the true temple. In other words, he is going to call us today to worship him, to live in his presence, to commune with him. And we'll see that Jesus will stop at nothing he, he, will, he will eliminate whatever it takes to, that's in our way of us worshiping him because he has all the authority to do so. Because in him is where we find the true presence of God. He is the true temple. Our right, let's go to flow straight from the text today. We're gonna look at three uh, parts of this text. Number one, we're gonna see how Jesus reveals his authority in the beginning of this text. Then we're gonna see how Jesus begins to flip their tables and what that means. And number three, we're gonna see at the end how Jesus points to his glory. So let's go ahead and dive into the text as we pick up from where we left off last week as Michael led us from Cana, the wedding at Cana. Now he's made his way to Jerusalem. In verse 13, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. So as we saw last week, Jesus was at this wedding feast and he left that wedding feast. And admittedly, he had already shown a little bit, at least he had given us a glimpse of his authority at that wedding feast, right? It was more concealed. It was more subdued. But do you remember last week as we were, we were looking at the wedding feast, uh, Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, we have a problem at this wedding. They've ran out of wine. And, and Jesus' response is kind of, uh, it, it's kind of cryptic in a way. He says, my hour has not come. <laughs> and what he's saying there and, and to Mary is that I'm doing my father's will. You, you can't tell me what to do. And in doing so, he's actually showing his authority to Mary. And Mary actually doesn't get up in arms. She actually uh, responds appropriately. She says to the servants, do whatever he says. Right? He's already shown us, he's given us a glimpse of his, his authority, but here he makes it public. He makes it much clearer. And what's so interesting is what he does here. It says in verse 15 that he goes in, when he goes to the temple and he observes what's happening, he makes this whip of cords. Now the word cords, the best translation we could find of that is, is this word rushes, which is basically like a grass-like plant that you would make baskets and papyrus out of. In other words, what Jesus does, he gets mad and he gets some of this grass and he puts it together. He's not making a whip that's going to harm people, okay? This isn't like the bonded leather that my grandma used to show me how much she loved me, right? 
<laughs> Parenting. All right, we'll talk about that another time. He's not making something that's going to intentionally hurt people. If you're worried about Jesus hurting people and raising wealth on people, that's not what's happening here. That's not what he's doing. He's not coming to overpower them physically. It's his moral indignation that overpowers them in this moment. It's not the actual whip that's hurting people. Hundreds of people are running away and screaming and they're being driven out. And it's not that he's doing anything to hurt them. What they're experiencing is a manifestation of his glory. What they're experiencing this moment is the way he looks. What they're experiencing this moment is his presence. You see, it was the presence of Jesus that drove them out of the temple, not the whip itself. People scattered because they instinctively knew in that moment that this man had the right to do what he was doing. There was an authority present in Jesus that, that showed them that he had the right to do what he was doing. They felt it in that moment. And you can see that they felt it because then at the end, they come back and they're like, hey, we need an explanation for how you just did that, <laughs> right? How did hundreds of people just scatter like that? Like, what, how did you do that, Jesus? And you might think, well, Jesus, this isn't the best way to win friends and influence people to start your ministry. And that's not what Jesus is trying to do here. That's not the point. The point is Jesus is teaching us something about how we actually follow him and his authority in our lives. You see, the first thing we discover here is that Jesus does, listen, Jesus does what he does because of who he is. He doesn't give them the answer for why he does it at first. He just does it because it's who he is. And that is true in our lives as well. That our trust and our obedience to Jesus doesn't come when we know the answers of why he does things in our lives. It should come at the front end of because who he is in our lives. Because he has the authority and he has the right to do whatever he pleases because he is God. And I know it's easy for us to look at Jesus in this moment and say, well, Jesus, it'd be so much easier for me to understand why you're doing this in the temple and why you're so upset if you just give me the answers, if you just share why. But he doesn't share why with the people. He just shows up and his authority enough is what drives them out. They don't get the answers, but they do feel his presence. And the same is true for us. If you're a Christian here, that is what happens in our lives. There are moments and there are times where he's going to overturn tables in our lives and he's not going to give us an explanation. And I know what we want in our hearts, we're tempted to do is say, Jesus, I want the explanation first. But there are times where Jesus will come into our lives and he has his reasons, but the primary thing is that we trust him for who he is and that he has the right to do that. He has the authority to do that. And we've been playing games like this since the beginning of time. If you go back to the garden and, and you look at Adam and Eve, I mean, Adam and Eve have this beautiful garden and God says, you can do whatever you want to this garden, enjoy my presence, but there's this one commandment I give you. Don't eat of that tree. He doesn't really give them a ton of explanation of why. He just tells them, don't eat, don't do it. But you know who does question? You know who does ask the why questions? It's the serpent. The serpent comes in and he tries to, to, to uh, get an explanation. for the, why, is Jesus try, why, why is God trying to hold back this truth from you guys? He knows if you eat of this that you, you will be exposed to all these good things. He'll know. And, and he begins to ask the why question. So what do they do? They eat of the tree. And in doing so, their minds are open. You see, what God was, was wanting Adam and Eve to do, and the same thing he wants to do in our lives, is when he tells us something, the most important reason that we should follow it is not because we know the answer why, it's because of who he is. Because he's God. You see, if we obey God because we know the reasons why, then we're not actually obeying him at all. We're actually just using him. We're actually just using him for our own benefit. And let me give you an illustration of how this works. Imagine that you're about to marry someone. You get engaged, you're about to marry someone, and, and, and you've come into a lot of money. Okay, this is not my love story with Abby. Uh, she knew exactly what she was getting into when she married a pastor. But imagine that you, uh, 
You get, you're getting married and the week before the marriage, you lose everything, all your wealth. And then your fiance, he or she comes to you and she goes, you know, I'm just, I'm contemplating calling off the wedding now because I'm just less attracted to you without your wealth. I mean, what a sense of betrayal you'd feel in that moment, right? Because you would realize that you were never loved for who you were. That your, their love for you was, was based on external circumstances. They were just using you. And if God comes to us and he says, just because I'm God, I'm bringing something into your life, will you accept that? And we say, no, 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 well, God, first, can you, can you give me the practical reasons why? Like, I, I just need to know how this fits into my life. I need to know how it fits into my goals in life. And then, I, then I'll obey you. But, but if not, no, uh, no, please don't do that. I mean, what act of betrayal to the divinity of God that we would question who he is? You see, what's happening here is these people are seeing that Jesus comes to the temple and immediately they experience his authority. They don't need an answer to why. They just experience the presence of God and they leave. It's enough for them to act. And the same is true for us, that because God is our creator and he is our redeemer, the most important reason sometimes that we should trust and obey him is simply that we would love him for who he is before we get an answer. We ever figure out the reason why he's doing what he's doing in our lives. And this is what we see here in the beginning, that God and his ways are infinite. They're greater than our understanding. If we believe in infant God, then we have to believe that his wisdom is above ours, that we may not always get the answers. And we may not always know the answers to why he does things. What we do know is that he has the right to do it. He shows us here he has the authority to do it. Just like he has the authority to, to fill our tables like a feast at the wedding banquet, he has the authority to flip our tables in our lives as well. And that leads us to his action. Jesus begins to flip their tables, man. It's amazing what he does. He goes to the temple, he sees everything, he makes this whip of cords, and then it says he poured out the coins, the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the first question we have to really ask is what's going on here, right? Like why are all these animals in the temple? Why do we have oxen and sheep and pigeons being sold right there at the temple? Well, these were the animals for, for temple sacrifice at Passover. And remember, there, there, there are people flocking from all over who are coming into the city. And you can imagine if you're going hundreds of miles to get to Passover in Jerusalem, it's kind of hard to carry a sheep with you the whole time, right? I don't know if you ever tried that. That's probably pretty difficult. And so out of convenience, they were selling these animals right there at the temple. And then you have the money changers. And why are the money changers there? Well, because these people are coming from foreign lands. And guess what they have? Foreign currencies. And if you're going to pay the temple tax, you have to have a very specific Jewish coin. So you have to exchange the money there as well so that you have the right, the right uh, currency to then pay the temple tax. And so all this is happening right here in the middle. It's basically this compact, you can imagine, it's, it's, it's insane, it's loud. It's like a Vegas strip for moral people. I mean, there's people who have money, they're bringing money, they're exchanging money, they're haggling money, they're over prices, there's animals, it's, it's chaotic. And then what they do is they get their animal and literally they're on top of each other. So they take that animal, they just take a few steps right to the, the priest, he sacrifices the animal, they do their duty, and then they leave. And that's what's happening. And Jesus looks at this and he gets angry. Now, let's just stop right there for a moment. Because I think even those words that Jesus gets angry is sometimes hard for us to see. Because in our minds, we are ingrained with this Jesus that is meek and mild all the time. 
And I grew up with that as well. I remember there's a painting in the, the church that I grew up in that had Jesus holding this baby lamb in the, the middle of this meadow of flowers and these children reaching up with their arms like this. And that was the image I had in my head for years, right? And there's a lot of truth to that, that also can characterize Jesus as this passive person, that he's not. And why this matters is because, because as Christians, we believe that in Jesus, we have a perfect mirror into the nature of God Almighty himself. So if we want to know who God is like, we look at Jesus. And I know it's, it's tempting, guys. I know it's tempting to just want to believe that Jesus is, is always just kind of this, this God of love. He's this God of, of support. He's this God of affirmation in my life, and that's it. And we just want to hold on to that. And sometimes it even is, it's hard for us to wrestle with this idea that, that there's an angry Christ, and if we get angry at the notion that there is an angry Christ, then perhaps what that's actually revealing is that we've, we've maybe had the luxury of a sheltered life. Maybe it's, it's revealing that if, if we just want God to be the, the guy who gives us happiness in life all the time, and just make sure that we have what we need for happiness in life, and that's it, then, then maybe we haven't wrestled with our sin. Maybe we haven't wrestled with the heartache of this world. Because when you look at the world around us, it should, at times, it should anger us. And it has throughout history. I mean, you look at Martin Luther and what he did when he nailed the 95 Thesis at the, the church doors of Wittenberg. He did that because there was anger in him at what was happening in the church. There was compromise that was happening in the church. You, you look at, at uh, William Wilberforce and what he did and why he threw himself in the abolition of slavery because he was angry. He saw that there was something that was, that was uh, keeping people from experiencing the true presence of God in this world. It angered him. You think of Bonhoeffer, he did the same thing when he opposed Hitler. You think of MLK, what he did here in the States. We, we do these things, we see Christians doing these things because they see in a world where the love of God is compromised. They see a world where people have done things that have kept us from experiencing the true reality of our God. And it should anger us. And it angers Christ here. And he looks and he's not angry that the merchants are cheating these people. He's angry because they have gotten in the way of people experiencing the presence of God. That's what he's angry at here. He's angry because they have distracted people and this has become a mockery of what the sacrificial system was pointing to. That they were, they were coming in and they were offending God greatly, even though they didn't know they were offending him. And, and we too can do that, right? We can be so unmoved and even blind to our actions sometimes that we don't realize that we're trampling on holy things. And that's what they were doing. They were trampling on holy things. And so what he does is he acts. He begins to flip their tables. And the disciples, they see this moment and they realize, aha, there was this verse in the Old Testament that reminds us of this. Psalm 69.9 that says, zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, what they're experiencing is that Jesus has such an eagerness for the glory of God. He has such a desire that we would see his presence. He has such a desire that we would find a way to God that is unimpended by our, our sin and, and what we struggle with and distraction for. He has such a zeal that burns his heart for us to experience the glory of God that he does this that he acts. You see, in Jesus, we meet someone who has perfect zeal and perfect wisdom and perfect love. And we can't just picture one of those things that we want to pull off the menu and say, that's our Jesus. This is who he is. And there's nothing we need to worry about Jesus here, but what he is doing is showing us something about how we complicate our lives, how we complicate the most important reality of our lives, which is worshiping God. And Jesus shows us that he has a deeper earnest, a deeper desire a deeper zeal that we would experience the glory of God than we have in ourselves. He knows exactly what we need. He cares more about that reality than we do. And that's why he is so consumed by it here, so much so that one day he will go to the cross for us. 
He cares so deeply about what's happening in the temple here. And the temple wasn't even the ultimate reality. Jesus was the ultimate reality. The sacrifices were pointing to him, but, but he cared so deeply about this because he knew the temple was the place that God had provided for people to come and get right with him and to experience a fresh start in their broken lives with God. And that's why people are coming to Jerusalem in the first place, to sacrifice in the temple. And Jesus, the one who sees this, and he has such a deep longing, he cares so intensely about this, and he is so bothered that instead of hearing the murmur of prayer in the temple, he hears the bleeding of sheep. That instead of if, if hearing the, the praises being sung, he hears the clinging of coins on the ground. This bothers Jesus. And it should bother us today as well. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we do this all the time. We come to a church, not because Jesus is there, but maybe it's a good opportunity for networking and, and connection. Or sometimes we just simply come to church unprepared to worship the living God. We come distracted with everything on our minds, our career or anything but God. And listen, you can, we can come to a church and we can be a part of a church and we can live with an unreality towards God because our hearts are filled with so many other things but him. See, Jesus is not just angry at their blatant sins of what they're doing here. He's angry that they're not paying attention, that they have forgotten the whole point of why they were coming to the temple in the first place. And he longs so much that the glory of God would be present in our lives. He longs so much that we would be consumed with a zeal for worship, just like he is. He longs that we'd be drawn near to God. And the point is simply this, that if you force him by distractions or distance, don't be, don't be surprised if Jesus comes and flips tables in your life as well. He doesn't do it because he hates you. He does it because he wants you. And that's the point here. The point is that Jesus is showing us that he will do whatever it takes to become real to us. He doesn't want anything to distract us from being in his presence and worshiping him. And I know many of us can tell stories of how Jesus has come to us in ungentle ways. He certainly has come into my life like that. I can share story after story of loss and loss in my life that I may gain Christ. More losses than I thought were necessary in my life, but he knew they were necessary. And it's not because he had it out for me. It's because he loves me and that he wants me to experience his presence. I'm sure many of us could share the same stories. But listen, the point is, if God intends to get through to us, he will, even if it takes turning over tables in our lives. Because he values us. He values honesty with him. He values that his presence would become very real to us. He values that way more than the comfortable distractions that keep us at arm's length from him. And listen, this, this is maybe hard to hear, but the whips of Jesus are so much better than the kiss of the world. And I know that sounds crazy to think of, but Jesus turning over tables in your life is so much better than getting a kiss from the world. And if you've never experienced his love and his mercy, then I understand that may sound crazy, but if you've experienced his love and his mercy, that makes complete sense. That there's something beautiful that when our lives are turned into upheaval, that God is present with us. And in those moments we cling to Christ when he overturns tables in our lives, that we know that he has walked that path with us already. We know that he understands our pain. We know that he's received our nails. And we know precisely that that is the place that we will best experience his presence. In those moments, what he desires for us is the same thing he desired for these people in the temple. That they would be reminded of the reason they needed sacrifice in the first place. That the one thing that's on the mind of Christ is his death. And he's going to the temple and he's 
He's angry that people have been distracted and forgotten the point of the sacrificial system in the first place. And in those moments that we feel that we're in in a deep place of, of struggle or pain, the thing that we need to focus on is him and what he has done for us, that Christ has died for you. And that leads us to our third point here, that Jesus points to his glory. It's a remarkable end of this passage. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for, uh, uh, to us for these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and, we will, and you will raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, we're going to see again and again in the Gospel of John is that people around Jesus are thinking on a much more superficial level than him, right? And, and, and he's, he's thinking and interacting on a much more profound level, you know? They come and they, they ask him a legitimate question. The authorities ask him a, a legitimate question. Like, can you explain what you just did here in the temple? Like, what, what gives you the right to do this, you know? That's a good question, even if it's asked with bad motives. But Jesus gives an account for his behavior. He basically says, hey, you know what? You care about this temple. That's good. Do you realize that the one that this temple ultimately points to is standing right in front of you? You see, he kind of says it in code, and and John uh, explains this to us. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it. And John says, well, he's actually talking about his own body here. The point is what he's saying here is that they're coming to Jesus and saying, how, how can you act like you own the temple? And Jesus is like, own it. I am the temple. Like, I, I am the final temple. I, I am where the, the glory of God is most densely packed here on earth. I am the climax of it all. I, I am the true temple. That's what he is screaming here. And he's, he's reminding us of this, our need to be in his presence. And we can go again, we can go all the way back to the garden and we can see this. That in the Garden of Eden, it was a sanctuary, a place where we would experience the holiness and the glory of God. But guess what happened? We chose to to trust ourselves more than trust God. We decided, just like Adam and Eve, our our family, we decided that that we rather uh, use God instead of trust Him for who He is. We decided to trust in ourselves. And God did exactly what we would do to that person who says, well, you know what? I don't think I'm interested in you anymore because you lost your money. And he expels them out of the garden. And there's a picture at the, at the, end, of, uh, at the end of this, in Genesis chapter three. What, what do we see standing at the garden entrance? There's a flaming sword and a cherubim, this angelic being, this celestial being. But you know, God, God, God did not leave his people without a sanctuary. He continued to provide a way for us to experience the the glory of God. He did it through the tabernacle. And then he he did it in the temple. And in the temple, there was this this veil that was hung that separated the holy place of God, the the, the place where his glory was, the place where we would experience his presence. You know what was on that veil? There were palm trees and grass similar to that of a garden. And there was a cherubim. And the only one who could go through that and experience the, the presence of God was the high priest. He could do that once a year. And the only way he would go there is if he brought a substitute, a sacrifice, because a sacrifice was needed. Otherwise, you couldn't be in the presence of God. Otherwise, it would kill you. And then we get here to the temple. And Jesus says, I am the true temple. I am where you're going to find the presence of God. 
And amazingly, what we see here is that we are the ones who have offended the Holy One over and over in our lives, and yet he takes it upon himself on the cross. He sacrifices himself. In that moment, that veil is torn. In that moment, our access to the very glory of God and the presence of God can flood into our lives. The holiest of holies is there in our lives now when we open ourselves up to the gospel. That very presence that would kill you is now available to you, that we are partakers of the glory of God through Christ, which means that the only sacred reality that we should have in our lives in the world today is Jesus. He is the only sacred reality. So the question has to, to be asked this morning of us, what is so sacred in our lives right now that we're centering everything around? Like what, what is so untouchable in our world that other things just had to find a way to fit into it? You see, a Christian is someone who believes that Jesus doesn't exist on the margins of our life. That, that, that other things are, are in the center and he's just on the margin. No, no, no. We believe he is the true holy temple. We believe he is the focal point. We believe he is the only thing sacred and everything else has to learn to make room for him. You see, we don't do this perfectly in our lives, but God has given us a new heart and he is Lord, which means that everything finds its appropriate place when it is bowing down and worshiping him. And Jesus knows we're gonna struggle with this in life. He knows we're going to struggle with putting, honoring Christ as holy in our hearts. That's why he says at the end of this verse, look what he says in this passage. It's, it's so remarkable. He says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. The wonderful thing here is that Jesus doesn't need you and me. He's not relying on us. He's not depending on us because he understands us. Because he knows that we bring no advantage to him and that he brings every advantage to us. And he makes it abundantly clear here in verse 25 that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knew right to the depths. He knew the holy presence of God is in Christ and the unholiness of us is in us, right? He knew that. He knew that down to the depths of who we are in our hearts which means that we don't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend who we are today because Jesus knows. He knows our hearts. And the deal breaker for God is not that we struggle with sin in this world. The thing that God doesn't want for us is when we put him on the margins of our life. When we marginalize the very Holy One, Jesus. You see, there's really two options as we come to the Lord's table today to respond to him. One option is we can trust a savior who is willing to, to turn over tables in our lives to get us close to God. Or the other one is that we can trust in ourselves who will do everything to keep us safe and comfortable from the only savior that is out there. One of those options is true of our hearts today. Our culture will not warn us about the enemy within at all. And ourselves will keep us from the only savior that is out there. And there is no other savior but Christ. But the gospel reminds us this morning that God knows you. He knows exactly who you are. And yet he loves you. He knows down to the depths of who you are. He knows man and yet he loves them. 
And he loves you too much to be content with resting on the margins of your life because there is no blessing for you in that and there's no glory for him. He who desires to be in the center and he will pursue us because he loves us. And that is what we see here. As we end here, I just want to read a quote, a quote we've said several times from the Chronicles of Narnia. And I just, I love this quote because I think it encapsulates Jesus in this moment. Mr. Beaver in the Chronicles of Narnia speaks about Aslan who mirrors Christ. And he says this, he says, safe? No. <laughs> who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. That's the real Jesus. How do we connect with that Jesus in our hearts today? Will we let Jesus be who he is? We let him be the sinner. We let him be the true temple. We experience the presence of God in him. We love him and we revere him for who he is. And we begin to worship him with zeal for his glory in our lives. Because there will be a day that the, the scriptures promise that we will gather with all of his people in the new heavens and the earth and the new Jerusalem. And, and there we will behold his glory completely. We'll see his face and it will shine the splendor of his glory. It will no longer be concealed like it was in the tabernacle. It will no longer be hidden behind a veil like it was in the temple. It will no longer be coated in flesh like it was in his incarnate body. We will experience it fully. It will shine forth the resurrected splendor of our Savior forever. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.